Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Increased sophistication in manager assessment is an important trend in the search for alpha. My conversations with Michael Mobison and Annie Duke suggested frameworks to think about enhanced decision-making processes and prompted a deeper dive into the ways allocators and managers can improve their craft. This week and next, explore some of the tools available to help make it happen. My guest on today's show is Basil Kunibi, the CEO of Novus Partners, a data analytics company whose mission is to help the world's top investors generate higher returns. As big data pervades commerce across industries, Novus is the most well-known provider of tools to analyze investment manager performance, allowing allocators to play Moneyball by breaking down the attributes of manager skill. Novus's 200 clients are split between allocators and hedge fund managers who collectively see approximately $3.5 trillion of assets. You can learn more about the company and its service at novus.com. Our conversation starts with Basel's path to creating Novus and dives into the tools an allocator can use to improve their understanding of a manager's skill, including the data sets available to allocators, the levers a manager employs in driving returns, the relationship between data and a manager's process, a framework to analyze crowded names, and future horizons for data-driven assessments of managers. Before we get going, I want to give one more shout out for Cycle for Survival, a fundraiser for rare cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital that I'll be participating in over the next few weeks. Thanks so much to those who gave last week. And for those who are thinking about it, don't think twice about the amount. Price of a cup of coffee, whatever it is, every dollar helps in the fight against rare cancers. So join the battle. Go to cycleforsurvival.org and under the participant name, throw my name in. Give whatever you're comfortable giving. The more, the merrier. And thanks so much for your consideration. 
please enjoy my conversation with Basil Kunibi. Basil, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. How did you come to founding Novus? Honestly, it was a little bit out of frustration. I started my career at Merrill Lynch after I graduated UVA and great training for two years on the credit side. Always wanted to be in the hedge fund industry. And one of the benefits of going to UVA is you had these phenomenal hedge fund managers that would come back and give back to the community. You know, so John Griffin from Blue Ridge taught behavioral finance. You know, Paul Turner Jones taught one of my favorite classes called financial trading. You know, so I always had a lot of respect for the hedge fund industry and I wanted to be a part of it. So I went to Merrill and it was a great program, great training, but I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to be in the hedge fund industry. And so I naturally started to interview at hedge funds. And a similar experience actually to when I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, I had to go and, and check out all these boarding schools in the Northeast. I basically got rejected by all of them. Phillips Academy and Phillips Exeter and Deerfield and Hotchkiss and just the most amazing institutions. But it was a wake-up call for me that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't on the right path. So it was a great learning experience. And I interviewed a lot of hedge funds. I didn't get a lot of offers. You know, not to say that being in a fund of fund is kind of the, the second best choice, but I en- ended up interviewing in a fund of fund called Ivy Asset Management, which at the time was about $9 billion fund of fund. I was fortunate to get an offer at Ivy and really excited about the idea of interviewing you know, some of the smartest investors in the world. And obviously, you know that you know, much better than I do. But as a young you know, 20 I guess, 22-year-old kid at the time. It was a really exciting opportunity. And so I started at Ivy and quickly made a niche for myself. In addition to being a research analyst, I was basically the quant guy. I had gone through a journey in my life where I read everything Buffett ever wrote. I even got into like technical analysis and read about Elliott Wave Theory. And I was just a consumer of information. I wanted to learn more and more about the markets. And so I'd sort of developed a framework by the time I graduated college of being a fundamentally oriented investor. And so it was a big surprise to me to see that fundamental analysis of investment managers wasn't something that was incorporated into the work that we were doing. Fundamental analysis of investment managers. And so when you think about investing in a stock, and a lot of the type of managers that maybe you and I like fundamentally oriented guys that are going to dig deep into income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow, and model out companies, and, and really do the work, but a lot of financial work. How much do they weigh that versus how much do they weigh the stock price over the last year? And I felt like in the allocator business, we weighed the stock price over the last year very heavily. Meaning the performance of the manager. Exactly. There was no equivalent, really, of an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow. There was qualitative research of the manager, and I think that's probably not too different than the qualitative analysis of a a management team than a publicly traded company. You're a 20-something sitting in an Ivy investment committee meeting or research meeting. What was the conversation like about that qualitative assessment of a manager? I think it was certainly very important in the sense that much of it really centered around the individual portfolio manager, the quality of that portfolio manager, quality of the team, the quality of the process, the edge. But it often was highly linked to the last 12 months performance. We'd anchor off of that. So if someone was up 50% in the last 12 months, they were a superstar. And the line of questioning would move in that direction. If they were down 20%, they were an idiot. And and I didn't feel like that could possibly have been the case. Just my understanding of how things tend to mean revert. There's skill and luck involved. You know, after reading the Market Wizards books and things like Remissions of a Stock Operator, there's always luck involved in investing. And so 
the idea that we would fundamentally analyze the manager, sort of trying to understand the weight of the manager versus how many votes they got in the last year to, to obviously take a line of Buffett. That was really something that was lacking. And so how did you start pulling that thread? Foundationally, it started with data. When you're analyzing a company, you're going to go through the 10 Qs and the 10 Ks, and you're going to pull down the financials, and you're going to start building models and Excel and things like that. With managers, there were really a few data sets that were available. Obviously, returns. Everyone had access to returns. But there were three additional data sets that we had access to that we really weren't doing much with. The first one was public regulatory filings, 13Fs, Ds, Gs, 3s, 4s, 5s. If you really want to expand the AMF in France, the CBM in Brazil, the Ministry of Finance in Japan. And these, so these are all regulatory documents that allow you to learn about an investment manager's positions. Yes, and they were statements of fact in the sense that a manager had to report, for example, in a 13F, assuming they had $100 million of investable assets at the time, had to report a list of all of their long positions. And you knew that fact, as of the following day, they had these positions, this market value, and this quantity. If you had Ds and Gs, it would get even better or more frequent. And obviously, that's expanded over time. So today, even on a daily basis in Europe, managers are required at a certain level to disclose all their short positions. And so I felt like that was a really valuable data set. And I'd say 95% of the people that I interacted with didn't. And that, that ended up getting confirmed in the early years of, of Novus. But the second data set was the monthly exposure reports or risk reports that we were getting from managers. And typically, they would give you AUM, number of positions, top 10 positions, long, short, gross, and net by sector, market cap, maybe geography. And that was not necessarily being systematically analyzed, particularly when you got attribution. So you'd get long, short attribution by sector and so forth. And then finally, we actually got some full position level transparency. We'd get in the days of single prime, you'd get a printout from the prime broker of all the positions. And so I, I basically locked myself in a cube. I wasn't quite at the office level yet, but I locked myself in a cube and I spent maybe a year just deep diving on that data across all 170 managers. And did you have a hypothesis you were working with with the data initially? We sort of had a, an objective. And the objective was I wanted to understand the skill sets of managers, and I wanted to understand their fundamentals. You opened the door of this closet after a year. You hadn't eaten any year, slept, bathed, anything. What happened internally at Ivy when you came away with something. Didn't receive a lot of encouragement, I think, along the way. I was the new kid on the block, and so I was, I was definitely the youngest research analyst there. I was given probably least amount of responsibility from a manager coverage perspective. I had two or three managers that I primarily covered, and they were probably the, the smaller allocations. What did you see in that initial data research analysis? What I saw is that I had an edge in being able to objectively measure manager skill and fundamentals for the purpose of doing what ultimately every single investor does, which is forecasting the future. And ultimately, if you make an investment in a manager, you're forecasting how they will perform in the future. You're not investing in their historical track record. You're investing in their future track record. And so I felt like by having access to all this data and understanding the skill sets of managers, so for example, wasn't quite as sophisticated as this, but we started to look at things like batting averages, not win-loss ratios, not yet, that came later. We looked at alpha generation 
by sector, by market cap, things like that. And we looked at fundamentals, and I felt like the fundamentals were really important. It gave me the confidence to be able to sit down in a meeting with folks that were much more experienced than I was. Having them effectively give a hypothesis or an opinion based on their most recent meeting with the manager and saying, XYZ manager is feeling really good right now. I could tell that they've got fire in their eyes. I could tell that they said they're seeing more value than ever. We asked them about their liquidity and the manager said liquidity is incredible. We asked the manager about the opportunity set in large caps, even though they've invested in small caps, and the manager said that they see the opportunity the same exact way. And that sort of this information or foundation that I had built armed me to say, actually, liquidity's deteriorated significantly over the last six months. Or their batting averages in larger cap securities are lower than their batting averages in small cap securities. And so maybe I felt confidence for me. Maybe I was a nuisance for other people. But that was incredibly rewarding to me. So that was the exercise of taking someone's qualitative judgment from their conversation and mapping it to a set of data. Absolutely. How is that received when you're, as you said, you're the young kid in the room but you're sitting there with facts. And this goes back, is this 10 years ago? Yeah, this is this more, yeah, more like you know, 12, 13 yeah. years ago. It was received well in the sense that people were interested. You know, a lot of very smart people at Ivy. So to a certain extent, I think people were happy that I was doing it and they weren't. <laughs> but at the same time, I think all human beings, you know, we receive information. It turns out that right now when I'm speaking from kind of the, the outer part of my brain, you know, the, the smarter part of my brain. But when you speak, someone else doesn't receive it. Most people receive information actually in sort of the amygdala. I think that that's probably one of the things that I missed was people usually filter information very quickly as, is this a threat? That's kind of step one. And then if it's not a threat, is it interesting? And if it's interesting, you know, maybe it gets the smarter part of the brain. But if it's a threat, usually it sort of gets blocked or ignored. And so I, I think for the most part, people found it to be often not consistent with their qualitative thinking. And so I would say on balance, it wasn't really received that well. And you started by saying you started Novus out of frustration. So was, those were the seeds of that frustration? That was part of the frustration. <laughs> I felt it should, should have been received well. I felt, objectively speaking, I felt like it would have helped us improve our returns. And I basically did what any great investor should do, which is take a bad bet and lever it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I started Novus. Talk a little bit about what Novus was when you started as a concept and take me through to where it is today. When I started Novus, I was about 24 years old. I didn't have much money. I had some like maybe $50,000 saved up. I thought it was a lot of money at the time. And Ivy had a couple offices. One was in Times Square. And the other office was out in Long Island, in Jericho. And so often I'd have to take the Long Island Railroad and spend a lot of time reading. Since college, I really have loved reading uh, the stories of great entrepreneurs, great investors. I'd say that that's taken a big amount of, of share of my reading time. Back then, I was reading Direct from Dell by Michael Dell, Made in America by Sam Walton. I was reading about some of the great market wizards. These are the types of things that I was reading as a young kid. And it was inspiring to me that one day I could start my own firm and be entrepreneurial and apply some of the lessons that I had learned. And so that was kind of the background of what was going through my head at the time. So sort of the frustration 
combined with wanting to do something and wanting to do something big in life really led me to this vision at the time of creating the next generation investment platform for allocators. That was the vision. And so back in 2007, I probably quit in February or March. And then in April, I started Novus. My partner, Stan Altscheller, who's currently Novus, heads up product and research, is just a phenomenal individual. And I think that's really important. If you're starting something to have the right partner. I'd spoken to Stan about this kind of early on. And sort of in the spirit of a great leader, I said, Stan, you should quit first. <laughs> <laughs> so Stan quits. And then, you know, I quit. Where was Stan at the time? Stan was at Ivy as well. Stan was a quantitative superstar. There was an Excel problem that I couldn't solve. Stan was the man. And we became really good friends, and we had sort of developed this vision together. We went back to the recruiter that had placed both of us at Ivy. Uh, I got in Michael Goodman, Longridge Partners. Somehow convinced Mike to lend us a couple offices at like a 1000 bucks each in the back room. And it was a room, probably the size of the room that we're in right now, size of conference room, and no air conditioning. I had to kind of leave the windows open. We had our servers in there. It got really hot. But that was the starting point of Novus, and, and we packed that room. At one point, I think there was like 12 people in that little room. <laughs> but it was such an amazing experience. What was the initial pitch? It was a small pitch. It was, look, we're going to be the best analyzers of public regulatory filings. And we're going to go through all these public regulatory filings, and we're going to deliver you an analysis on a quarterly basis that did the deepest diagnostic on public regulatory filings that you could find. And it was hard initially. A lot of folks weren't really looking at public regulatory filings, so it wasn't even replacing a job that existed. It was sort of introducing a whole new job. A few people we found were doing it. And these were, in my humble opinion, particularly great investors. And they tended to be people that were on the margin, smaller fund of funds, folks in Virginia and Tennessee, places like that, that were doing their own work and felt like the work that we were doing was better. So the initial product is we basically sold a package called the partner package. And the partner package was, call it 100 grand a year, and you got the best possible analysis of public regulatory filings on your, on your managers. What did a, the summary of that analysis look like? Like, what are the three or four key metrics that you were calculating? I'd say that the analysis was probably split into three separate sections. The first and most important was really what we called the individual manager analysis. So it was a five-pager on every single manager that looked at independent calculation of the manager's performance using public regulatory filings. A lot of assumptions in place, but that was very valuable for a lot of our clients just as an independent check on what the manager was reporting. We looked at the batting average the win-loss ratio, the alpha generation of a manager. We looked at key statistics like liquidity, their market cap focus, so things like median market cap, number of positions, concentration, you know, top five, top ten, et cetera. And then we do a deep dive and break it down by sector, by market cap, by geography, and so forth. So that was the first main block. The second block was an overlap analysis. So we would take all the manager positions and we, we would overlay them on top of each other's. And we would calculate the percentage of each manager's portfolio that was identical to other managers. And the results were incredible because sometimes you'd find managers where 50, 60% of the portfolio was the same as an allocator. I think one of the key things that every allocator tries to do is find uncorrelated streams of alpha. And if your managers were overlapping with each other, well, they weren't really uncorrelated. And then the final piece is something we called an aggregate or look-through analysis. And so we do a look-through aggregation 
of all the data to give a fund a fund or, or an allocator a sense of what does my portfolio look like on a look-through basis as if it were a single entity. And that's valuation of securities? Valuation of securities, top positions. And, and, and some of the conclusions were really simple. If you did a look-through analysis in allocator and you owned 5,000 equities and your top 10 were 9%, there was really very little chance that you were going to generate substantial alpha over the S&P, right? And so some of the conclusions were that simple. Uh, other conclusions were your top position is 600 basis points because you have eight managers that all own the same name. And that might not be a level of conviction that you have. So that was the, in- the initial product. And what are the core components of measuring the skill of a manager using this data? Well, this ended up developing over a much longer period of time. We've developed a framework called Novus Framework, and it's a particularly simple framework, which basically says that managers have five degrees of freedom to generate alpha. The first one we call exposure management. So it's moving around gross and net. Very simple. Now, what's interesting is we found over time, by now having access to private data, and we have about 1,500 hedge fund managers that now give us their position level transparency directly from administrators. And so we feel like that's a really valuable data set, and, and what I'm about to say is based on that data set. Exposure management, on average, detracts approximately 200 basis points a year wow. from a manager's performance. And that's just the manager moving their gross exposure or their net exposure, both. It's a surprisingly major component of people's return, particularly those that say they don't care about what the market does. They're they're bottom-up stock pickers, but it's a surprising component. Does that slippage come from what I might expect, performance chasing? Exactly. See, I think that it typically comes from, I think, a conflict between wanting to maximize your return, and so having as much exposure as possible at any given time, and protecting the firm. Effectively, your sensitivity is not just a function of your fund's performance, a function of your firm's performance to short-term shocks. And so when you go back and you look at periods like August, September 2011, March, April 2013, or even 2014, you look at October 2015 through February 2016, what you find is, is managers go into these periods of time sort of at full capacity on exposures. And so really the only thing they can do is reduce it when they really should be increasing it. And so it tends to be, as you stated, a reactive behavior and chasing. And as a, as a function of that, it tends to be detractive. Is there a wide range? Meaning if you mapped out a distribution of outcomes just on exposure management, do they tend to clutter around losing a little bit of money, or are there some people who are really, really bad at it and a few that are really good at it? I'm particularly skeptical when I see a manager that has generated a significant amount of lifetime return based on exposure management. Skeptical because? Because the likelihood of that persisting is very low. Similarly, I tend to be quite forgiving to managers who experience a significant amount of deterioration of return as a function of exposures. I'd say most folks are sort of in the middle, consistently negative. It's, it's like a silent drag on performance, and it's the kind of thing that compounds over time. Okay, so that's the first, exposure management. So the second is really capital allocation. And it really depends on what kind of manager you're talking about. But if it's, you know, if it's an equity long short manager, it's really how are you allocated by sector, maybe geography, maybe market cap. If it's a 
uh, event-driven manager might be capital allocation by asset class. Where are you within the capital structure? But generally speaking, if we just focus on the equity long short space for a minute, that's also a detractive activity because, again, it tends to be performance chasing. It te- there tends to be a bandwagon effect associated with it. You know, people tend to have more money in tech when tech is hot and less money in financials when financials not. And so I'd say the first two exposure management capital allocation are extrinsic skill sets. And what I mean by that is that those skill sets are really a function of the market, the outside. The next three are intrinsic. They're a function of what you are doing. You're in control of those things. And so as a function of that, I think the next three, we have found persistence, beautiful level of persistence. It gives me the faith based on data that there is a tremendous amount of alpha in the hedge fund industry. I'm right. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> what are those three? And then walk through each one. Well, uh, the first one is sort of the bread and butter. There's idea selection, stock picking, security selection, whatever you want to call it. And it depends how you measure it. But I think if you're being objective about it, a manager picks a security. It's like picking a marble from a marble jar. Now, you can define the marble jar any way you want, but that's a universe of similar marbles. I think a good approach is to, you know, if you picked a large cap tech stock, Well, you picked it from a marble jar with large cap tech stocks. You can apply a geographic frame to it. You can apply a market capitalization frame to it. But irrespective of what frame you choose, at the end of the day, you are selecting something from some sort of universe. And so we can measure that. And we found an incredible amount of persistence on idea selection. The fourth is position sizing. So it's once you select that marble, how big do you make it within your portfolio? The perfect example I always like to give is is we could have a group of 20 people uh, start on January 1st, and we could say, here's a million bucks to each. You're forced to own the Dow Jones Industrial Average, all 30 stocks. But you have to own all 30 at every single point in time, but you can size them any way you want. We could have a huge dispersion in performance. And sizing is typically fully in your control. The only time it ceases to be in your control is when you're capacity constrained. And now it's in the market's control. And so position sizing is critical. And just to put it in perspective, I think the right measure for determining position sizing skill is looking at a placebo. What's the placebo? It's an equally weighted portfolio. And some managers generate something like 900 basis points a year of excess return to their equally weighted portfolio. That compounds over time in a big way. The final one is really tactical trading. So it's your incremental buy and sell decisions that you make between point A and point B. And that one, I'd say, is sort of flat to down for the majority of the population. But you can find pockets of persistence. We know, for example, some managers that add two-thirds of their value from a return perspective intra-month. It's rare, but it's there. And so those last three skill sets, selection, sizing, and tactical trading, to me are the intrinsic skill set. You're in control of that. Incredibly powerful. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, 
because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So if I'm an allocator, I have a portfolio of managers, and I now have access to this Novus framework data analysis of how these managers have been, where they're good and where they're not. What do you do with it? Yeah, it's a great question. My hope in having developed this framework is really to help allocators become more long-term oriented in how they view managers and to give managers more rope. And how, so how would that play out? I think the challenge always is when a large portion of your thesis as an allocator, and I'm not saying this is the case for every allocator, but it is for some, when a large portion of your thesis is a function of what the manager's historical returns are. Well, by definition, if the returns turn bad, then your thesis turns bad. And so what ends up happening is you end up redeeming often at the worst possible time, or you end up contributing at the worst possible time. To give you a statistic, rolling three-year performance periods for hedge funds, correlation between different rolling three-year periods is about negative 0.15. In other words, there's actually a little bit of mean reversion in there. By being able to introduce a new framework that helps allocators understand the underlying skill sets of managers, I think first and foremost, they can be more long-term oriented in understanding those are long-term skill sets and being able to attribute performance to different things. So for example, if I'm an allocator and now I understand that actually security selection, position sizing, and trading is still strong, but the drawdown is largely a function of a bad market timing decision or a bad allocation decision, I might double down. But also what we didn't really talk about is the fundamentals that support those skill sets. For example, let's just say you and I ran an analysis on a manager. We found that they added two-thirds of their alpha intramonth via trading. Now, let me also introduce one additional data point, which is over the last six months, the percentage of the portfolio tradable in 30 days, assuming 20% of average daily volume, has gone from 90% down to 20%. What's going to happen to that skill set? It's going to go away. And so now by understanding the fundamentals and how they map back to the skill sets, I can start to have a higher degree of accuracy in predicting what the future will look like from an alpha generation perspective. And that, I think that, that comes to a key question of the persistence of the metrics, because like performance, any of these metrics, stock selection, skill, or capital allocation, it's all going to come from looking at past data. And I think what you're suggesting is if you can map how people generated the returns in the past with their environment, so those fundamentals, what was the liquidity profile that allowed them to elicit that return, that you start to draw some conclusions about the future. Persistence is an important concept. I have a general philosophy, which is you sort of have to sometimes measure people based on the game that they're playing. So intentions matter. And so, for example, if a manager's intention is to pick stocks and make most of their money picking stocks, well, they should be measured on stock picking skill, 
not on market timing skill. But in a similar vein, we often measure managers based on time. And so, for example, monthly returns is really the key metric in our industry. Take January's return as an example for a manager. What was that a function of? Was that a function of any conscious intention for the manager to generate a return in January? Not really. It was a function of ideas they came up with two years ago, ideas they came up six months ago, and ideas they came up with a month ago. It was a function of what the market did. It was a function of what individual sectors did. And so when I think about persistence, I think about it in terms of N, not in terms of T. So I think about number of observations as being a more important predictor of what will happen in the future than whether or not there's consistency in T. And I think that's a really important foundational frame. And so, for example, when I look at idea selection, I won't name any manager names, but I'll sort of give high-level examples that are descriptive. There is a manager that exists today, runs about $25 billion, so I've narrowed it down a little bit. And what I can tell you is they have generated close to 10% annual security selection skill, just 1,000 basis points per year. Now, here's the interesting stat, is they have 1,000 observations, and no one observation accounts for more than 3% of the total. Pretty robust, yeah. Pretty robust, right? And so that's how I think about persistence. And, and, and I think it actually is consistent with the notion of exposure management and capital allocation, because you just don't have enough data points. Yeah. We all know of managers that nailed 2008, did a great job, made the call, but they may have one, two, three, five calls within their lifetime relating to exposure management or capital allocation. And so it's really tough to find persistence around that. How efficient do you think the market is for talent? So for an example, even though the $25 billion of invested capital in this manager you described probably doesn't have their hands on the same analysis that you do, they're still managing $25 billion because the returns have justified it. If you look across managers, do you find that Generally speaking, the capital flows to the managers with the best skill? It's a great question. I think the answer is ultimately yes, but by the time it does, the opportunity is already gone. So what I mean by that is that this manager is extraordinary. They have $25 billion for a reason. But at $25 billion, it's going to be harder for them to do what they did between $500 million and $25 and billion. And does the data show that? Well, you know, everything that I've said up to this point, I have the data. It's at my fingertips. This is more of an opinion and, and more of a, just an observation that I've had is that I feel like it takes a while for the consistent long-term track record to catch up to the, to the skill sets. When you have your hands on data, there are a lot of things you can study that allocators either are concerned about or pay attention to. One of those is this notion of crowdedness, which in some sense is, could be a derivative of what you talked about from looking at overlap. But what have you seen in stocks that are crowded compared to other stocks? And, and how would you define that? We started looking at overlap. And over time, we've developed a methodology for crowdedness. So we actually have four different forms of crowdedness that are published indices on our platform. So we have something called the Novus Crowdedness Index. We have uh, consensus. We have conviction. And we have concentration. The four C's. The four C's. Stan Elchler, you know, my partner, gets a ton of credit for that. So let me just be clear about defining crowdedness. So, yeah. you know, conviction, for example, looks at the, the largest position sizes amongst 
hedge fund managers. But you look at each individual manager and you say, which names appear the most as greater than 5% positions? Concentration is really looking at the uh, concentration of the shareholder base which doesn't necessarily equate to crowdedness, but that's really shares outstanding. So you end up with a lot of activist-type stuff in there. Consensus looks at how many managers are in an individual name, looks at popularity. And crowdedness, to me, is a measure of two things. It's a measure of how many managers are in the theater and how small are the exits. So the way that we actually define crowdedness is we look at how many managers are in an individual name and what percent of total average daily volume do they represent. So to give you an example, which I think is very illustrative, guess what the most crowded stock was on July 2015? Oh, sounds like Valiant Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was Valiant. And what we do is we come up with a benchmark between zero and one. One is you're the single most crowded stock in the Novus 5000 stock index. And zero is only basically one person owns it or no one owns it. Valiant was at one. Valiant had 150 or so hedge fund managers, and in aggregate, they represented 7,000% of average daily volume. So 70 days worth of volume was represented by 150 managers. Now, really, is that bad? Not necessarily, but what it is is sort of a measure of future beta in some sort of bad it seems event. like it would also be a measure of liquidity to some extent. Yes, it definitely is a measure of liquidity. Uh, we, I've joked around with some of my hedge fund clients. and The managers always say, if you could just tell me the stocks that are getting more crowded, that's great because you can make a lot of money that way. But the key is when it reverses. And I can tell you there's three or four stocks right now that, that are in similar score to value. What are those names? You know, one of them is the Altaba, for sure, which is, uh, I think, the, the Yahoo, you know, spin out. I mean, I think you'd probably just go on our website and, 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 and find that, those stats. You know, I'm not, I'm not an, as much of an expert on it uh, in sort of tracking those on a daily basis, but we publish that pretty widely. And, and so crowdedness, the way we think about crowdedness, is not a bad thing. Actually, crowdedness as a factor outperforms over time. But it's extremely dangerous if you're not paying attention to it. So in turn a little bit to conviction, the way you described assessing skill as requiring a large number of data points or big N seems like it'd be the opposite in a high conviction portfolio. So you think about highly concentrated managers or activists where there are big position sizes, but probably not that many of them over time. How do you use the conviction metric? It's actually a great question. What I will say is that the number of observations is really dependent on your number of positions at any given time. And it's also dependent on your turnover. So high conviction doesn't necessarily mean low turnover. You could have a manager 20, 30 names at any given time, but turning those over a couple times a year. You could also have a situation where a manager has 20 positions for 10 years. And so what I would say is it's much, much harder to assess skill on a lower number of observations. By definition, if my holding period was 10 years and I had 20 names, it's gonna be really tough to analyze skill. You're just not gonna get the data. I would also say that that's rare in our industry because of the 
probably because of the institutional imperative that has evolved over the last 15, 20 years, and that there's very few managers that can withstand running that structure. And so more often than not, when you're assessing skill on the long side and separately on the short side, you know, I'd say if you have five years worth of data on a manager, you've got enough observations. Is there anything interesting in consensus and concentration to talk about? Well, consensus underperforms over time. Conviction is the best performer, I think. High conviction. High conviction. Yeah. Yeah. And concentration is a pretty good performer too. But I think the thing that you have to watch out for with concentration in particular is liquidity. And in in my experience the last 10 years analyzing managers, the, the key is really not where a manager is. It's where they're going. That matters a lot. So how do you determine where they're going? To me, the fundamentals really help you. And the fundamentals are all about today, not necessarily the past. But the best example I can give is the, the example of scale, which is something that a lot of folks spend a lot of time thinking about. Obviously, both allocators thinking about, like, when is a manager too big? And managers thinking about what their own capacity is. Now, take away the, the marketing line that every manager has to have when they launch their fund, which is, we're closing at 500 or we're closing at 700 And actually ask them, like, how did you come up with that number? And they usually give a pretty good answer. But actually, from a fundamentals perspective, the right way to think about capacity from our perspective is to think about what journey a manager takes as AUM goes up. So we think that there are three paths that a manager can go in a, in a forest, it's three separate roads that you can go. Sometimes you can pick more than one, but typically manager chooses one. And what I find really interesting, and this is coming from a place where I really want to help managers, less from a place of criticism, is that the path that's chosen usually is a, it's an unconscious decision that a manager makes. But the first path with rising AUM is to increase number of positions. You see that across the board. That, I'd say, probably has decent market share in terms of the path. The second path is moving up the market capitalization spectrum. And the third path is doing nothing and letting your liquidity deteriorate. Now, this is why it's so interesting to understand the skill sets. Because if a manager has tremendous position sizing skill, an increase in number of positions is going to effectively flatten that out. And by flattening it out, what's going to happen is usually the alpha from position sizing will deteriorate. And managers generated a lot of the value in small cap and micro cap stocks as they move up the market cap spectrum is going to see that alpha deteriorate. And the first two, while they're about deterioration, the last one, liquidity deterioration, is about being in business. And it's the only fatal one of the three choices. And so, for example, I've yet to see a manager that has experienced a significant liquidity deterioration, call it greater than 60% liquidity deterioration, that has actually survived in the long term. Usually it's a cycle on the way up. You're not that liquid. You're taking in more capital. You're sort of reallocating capital to the names that you have in your portfolio because you're a long-term concentrated investor. The act of reallocating capital into those names pushes those names higher. So it's, it's a classic positive feedback cycle. And that positive feedback cycle works on the way down too. And so as you get redemptions, you're forced to sell. You have more redemptions, you're forced to sell. People in this business are pretty smart. They can smell that. They start to go after you. Game over. I know from our conversations that Nova started as a service to make allocators smarter. And over the years, some of the managers heard about it, mostly from their clients, and started hiring you for their own data set. Talk a little bit about that evolution. We've always partnered with, with clients to do new stuff. 
And sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. 2009, 2010, we partnered with one of our allocator clients that was actually a seed investor as well. And so they, they had a real need for daily position-level data. The idea was to adapt our system from public data and exposure data to position-level data. And this ended up being an amazing partnership and that we built a daily portfolio intelligence system that could take in information from an administrator, a custodian, a set of prime brokers, whatever, an accounting system, and effectively run a bunch of analytics on an even higher frequency than what we'd been accustomed to. And we built that system back in 2009, 2010. And at the same time, an interesting phenomenon was happening, which is post the crisis in 2008, a lot of allocators felt like they needed to beef up the amount of transparency they were getting. And so particularly some of our big pension fund clients started demanding full position level transparency, which by the way, I think has been great because if you look at their turnover, it's gone way down. So uh, to that prior point that I made, when you have more data and it's not just returns, that's a good thing for a manager. It's not a bad thing for a manager because now the thesis is diversified. It's not just returns will always be good. And so the mixture of those factors, obviously developing something new with an exciting with an existing client and then getting an increase in transparency, we started first through the allocators to basically serve up the system that allowed them to analyze private longs and shorts. And then, interestingly, like 2010, managers started to come inbound. And they'd say, hey, we just met with XYZ Pension or XYZ Sovereign. And they were asking us about our batting average. We don't really know what our batting average is. Do you guys work with managers? And of course, the answer that a starving entrepreneur should give is yes, of course, we do this all the time. And so we started working with managers. And today they represent about 50% of the client base. And so what does the business look like today in terms of the number of clients? You said 50% are managers, 50% are allocators. Yeah, it's about a couple hundred clients, half allocators, half managers. It's actually a 50-50 revenue split. It's a you know, 50-50 split between what we'd call partner clients, where we're, we have a seat at the table with the clients in the sense that they'll invite us into the investment committee meetings. They'll invite us into the risk reviews. And we have about 20 people here that are on what we call our analytics team. And these are analytics experts that will read the tea leaves. And 50% of our clients are platform clients. And the platform clients will integrate your data, and here's the platform, and we'll support you 100%. But basically, you're running the platform internally, self-driven. What's interesting is we have about $4 trillion of aggregate AUM on the platform today. And so that gives you 3% of global AUM. I mean, that's a big number. So that gives you a lot of visibility into not only the position-level transparency on the managers, but the balance and transaction behavior of the allocators. And so I I could tell you for sure that our allocator clients are becoming lower turnover. We're seeing the balance. I mean, that's beautiful, right? But not at fast enough of a pace, in my opinion. The manager business is really so exciting to me because I find that managers, a large percentage of managers are really world-class athletes. Some of the smartest folks out there, they're really driven, they're very entrepreneurial, they're extremely adaptive. They're very smart. There's a reason why they got to where they got. It's because they're really good. There is a fair share of great marketers as well. But overall, it's been super rewarding because anytime you work with a great athlete that wants to get better, it's a beautiful thing. And that business has evolved today into working with about 100 managers to help them understand their own skill sets and their own fundamentals, to help them look into the mirror. And that's a really hard thing to do for a manager because the ultimate conclusion tends to be 
if you had done the following things, you would have generated an incremental 700 basis points a year over the last eight years. And that's a hard thing for a manager to digest because it doesn't really help for us to come back and say, hey, you're just awesome. It's really nothing that you can do to get better. Occasionally, there are conclusions that are close to that. And that's when you know, wow, someone was able to independently come to these conclusions and adapt. But I think we'd all agree for any learning adaptive machine, feedback is a necessary input in order to improve over time. And particularly important in the markets where I think the, the markets present probably one of the most difficult games of society. The rules are always changing. Regimes are always changing. And so it's really, really important for you to consider, not just change blindly, but to consider adapting to that game. And so typically what we do is, is we bring a manager on board. We go through their historical trade since inception. And we come back with the analytics. And we look at batting averages. We look at win-loss ratios. We, we help them understand their alpha generation. We run the Novus Framework Analytics. A lot of the conclusions are very objective. I mean, they're sort of like you should have less small positions. You shouldn't trade as much. You shouldn't move around your exposures as much. You should focus on the following areas. And invariably, what it means is that managers should be doing less, not more. And that's been really, really hard for managers to do. Yeah, it's not human nature. It's not human nature. And, and yeah, I think a big part of it is it's not human nature. And if there were some sort of psychological bias called activity bias. I think we all have it as evidenced by how many times you like to check our phone during lunch. But I think the other reason for it is the institutionalization of our industry has really led to managers not being able to express themselves as naturally as they normally would. And I give the analogy to my alligator clients. I say, look, if we could just all get along, if we could just let our managers run with twice as much of all, I think we'd probably get more than twice as much return. And we all know that. We all know that sharp ratio at the individual manager level doesn't matter as much as what the global sharp looks like, but that's a really hard thing to do for both the allocators and the managers. And so that's top of mind for me right now and, and something that I'm definitely spending a lot of time on, trying to figure out a solution to that. And what other markets do you see the Novus Analytics applicable to? Yeah, the two big initiatives right now are really multi-asset class and long only. The reason why it's easier to do for equity managers is because pricing data is much more readily available. So, if, for example, if you to calculate trading or even selection, you need really good pricing data. Now, what we've been doing our last three to five years is really expanding our multi-asset class coverage. So most recently, say the biggest investment that we're making at Novus right now is in fixed income data, which is extremely expensive, extremely complex, but will allow us to do this effectively the same exact framework on non-equity managers. And then long only is a big industry. I think they're struggling as well from an active management perspective. And so there's a big need within long only to look within and definitely something that we've started ramping up the client base on. So last year, I'd say we got a few clients. This year, we've gotten a few clients and we anticipate that will be a big percentage of revenues in the, in the coming years. It's just kind of amazing that long only would follow hedge funds in the analytic sense because the data started as really long only data. You had to get you had to get under the hood to get the short data. And it's such a well-developed industry, though, from a sort of an omen for maybe where the hedge fund industry is heading. And I, I don't think it's a particularly great thing, because if you look at the long-only world, the methods for performance evaluation are so well-established in basically a Brinson-based attribution 
of looking at what is your allocation effect, your inter- your selection effect, and your interaction effect, and what is your active share, and what is your your active error, and and all these metrics to a certain extent pressure these long only managers to stay very very close to the benchmark, and so it becomes really really hard for your average long only manager to generate a tremendous amount of active skills. So I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. We're very excited about it. We've got some amazing clients on the long-only side that are very committed to the process. And similar to that client back in 2009 that helped us to get into the private data business, we've got a couple that are helping us get into both the long-only business and get into the multi-asset class business. Before we turn to the closing questions, I just want to ask, what's the most creative application that you've seen from one of your clients from using the data? I don't want to get too proprietary. I think a lot of our clients are very sensitive about that sort of thing. I'll give an example that I think is relatively benign, uh, but still very powerful in the sense that one of the things that I've seen more and more managers do is have a thoughtful position sizing framework that is sort of a multi-factor position sizing framework. For example, factoring in crowdedness as an actual score in how you size a position. And so one client that has a maybe a five-factor model, crowdedness is one of them, and They've found that incredibly successful. So they still end up owning crowded stocks. But, man, is the bar high to get to a 7 or 10% position on a crowded name. And I think that's had a tremendous impact since they implemented that on basically minimizing their max drawdown. So it's been, it's been really very special. All right, Basel, here we go. You know what's coming, but it's coming anyway. So what was your favorite sports moment? Favorite sports moment? I mean, I think there's probably the top five involved Michael Jordan. A couple of those winning shots from Michael Jordan, really special. And, and what's really interesting about Michael Jordan is that he struggled for a period of time to win a championship. And it took a level of adaptation on his playing style, in particular passing more, for the Bulls to win their first championship, which I just think is, is beautiful. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My dad used to always say to me when I was a kid, shoot for the stars. And my dad was really believed in me. I knew he believed in me, but he was also tough on me and expected that I achieve my potential. And when your dad says that to you, it sort of sticks that I can accomplish anything. I'll give my mom some credit too. My dad told me to shoot for the stars, but my mom made me feel like I could actually get there. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that you think others may not know about? Well, I definitely read a lot about psychology. And I think most people in our business at this point have read a lot about psychology. But I think that it's such an important area. And what's interesting is more recently, I've really turned to physiology. And I've spent a lot of time in physiology. So I've been on a two, three-year journey just to understand my own physiology and to understand that ultimately your physiology is what leads to feelings. Feelings lead to emotions. Emotions lead to thoughts. Thoughts lead to behaviors, and behaviors are what lead to results. And so when you think about looking at some of the great athletes that are out there, you see that they're really able to be cool, calm, and confident under pressure, and that has a tremendous amount of impact. And running a company, that becomes really important because sort of your first day on the job, it's like you print business cards, and you're like, oh my goodness, like huge high fives all around. And so your first days are really filled with a lot of good news because anything is good news. And 
you, when you become a bigger organization now, 100 people as a CEO, every day you get good news and bad news. And being able not to get overly excited or overly depressed about it, I think, is important. Is there a particular either periodical or email stream you get or book? I've been working with a sports psychologist on something called HRV training, which I think is really important. What does that stand for? Heart rate variability. There's a good book on it called Coherence. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? One of the sort of recurring themes in my life is failure and rejection. I think the first time probably was that experience boarding school, getting rejected by all those boarding schools when some of my friends had been accepted, when my parents expected that I would be accepted. You know, sitting down in my dad's office as a 14-year-old kid with 10 offer letters sort of in the, that just came in from the mail, all of them thin, obviously, and opening those up in my dad's office, that was a, such an important moment in, in my development. And then I think also similarly at Novus, I think when you look over our 10-year period, it's been a great success. But there have been periods where I, I felt like I was really failing. There have been periods where it's been very difficult. I think I've made some really big mistakes. And one of those mistakes was sort of the balance between talent recruitment, scaling that up, and talent management and making sure that you had the talent management systems in place in order to be able to develop these people and integrate them, onboard them in the right way. I'm glad genuinely that we made these mistakes in the sense that that's how you learn. Do I wish I'd known them earlier? Sure. Is there an embedded lesson about failure and overcoming failure in that? Well, I think that you just have to be open to feedback a lot earlier in order for you to learn at a lower cost. By definition, what happens most of the time is that people achieve certain success and it gets to their head. And by definition, when it gets to their head, they're less open to what others have to say about what could be going wrong. And so what happens is you end up missing some of those initial signs. And then you fall really, really hard and you really hit your head. And that's when you learn the lesson. And my hope is to not fall on my head as much as I, I have in my life. <laughs> All right, one last question. It's your waning days, your sitting in a rocking chair, looking over data about hedge fund managers however many years from now. What advice would you give yourself today? There are ways to make money and be a good person at the same time and never compromise on that. And so I think one example is if you're, if you're going to buy a healthcare company, that at the end of the day is going to fire thousands of scientists and researchers and put them out of jobs and then raise the prices by 10,000% on people that are dying from some sort of rare disease, knowing full well that people are going to die, that try to avoid making money on things like that. Because life is short, and when you're sitting in that rocking chair, you don't want to make money off of stuff like that. There's plenty of other opportunities to have in the portfolio. So I'd say that, that that's carried a lot of weight for me over the years is just try to do the right thing. And it's hard sometimes, but, uh, but that, that's important. Basel has been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thanks so much, Ted. I really appreciate it. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too. So I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.